everybody, it's Ian King, founder of Kingsports International and author of the Get Buffed Educational Range. Today we will be talking about and celebrating 20 years of the Get Buffed series. So what I'm going to do is take each of you off mute, everyone who's joining us on the call today, and ask you to use self-mute if you have background noise and putting your hand up at any stage during our, our discussion so we can answer your questions. I want to take you back and give you what I call an author's perspective of the time when uh, Get Buff was released. Now, the first Get Buff book was released in 1999. It was also the same year that I published a lot of that content on an internet magazine, which at the time was called tmag.com. And there are a number of things that I believe are really unique about the program. And even today, I'm, I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised when I'm talking to someone and they said, hey, Ian, remember, you know, back there in 1999, I first did your training programs. And they tell me in particular about the severe leg pain they experienced, etc. And it's, it, it happens more often than, than, than you'd imagine. And it's, it's really good to know that there were people who were around in that, that era, that really pre-internet era or the beginning of the internet era. So what I've done is gave some thought to the concepts that led to the Get Buff range, and I just want to talk about that for a moment. So whilst I did work with a number of bodybuilders through the 80s and 90s, my, my main focus was working with athletes of, of a whole range of different sports, predominantly at, uh, at the elite level and, and aiming for Olympics and World Championships and, and, and World Cups, etc. But what I discovered was that the physiques that we were developing with these athletes were as, were as good as any bodybuilding physique. And it, it might not have been as extreme in that uh, what the drugs could give you, but they certainly would have put the athlete on the front of the men's health covers, etc. And I got a lot of lessons about training the body from working with athletes of, of both genders. Uh, and, and if you see some of the pictures, if you've ever seen uh, some of the pictures of the, the athletes I work with, there were some pretty impressive physiques. So I took that, took the lessons that I learned from that to provide an, an education for people who were interested in training for themselves, training just to change the shape of their body, uh, not necessarily competitively, but just because they love to train and they wanted to get the outcome that strength training could give them. So in 1999, that was in my 19th year of coaching, and by that time I had the opportunity to develop quite a few concepts. And I want to share 10 of the things that I think made the, the, the program so unique at the time. And you really have to go back in your mind in history to to the 1990s to understand. So the first one I'm talking about is lines of movement. I developed the concept of lines of movement from the late 80s through to the late 90s. And after about a decade of experimenting, I, I published them, I think, possibly for the first time in, in 98 in the Strength Specialization DVD. But definitely in the 1999 Get Buffed and 1999 and onwards, TMAG magazines, etc. You'd all be familiar with lines of movement now. Everybody knows what it is. Very few people know where it came from um, because of the lack of uh, crediting in, in uh, publishing. But basically, the programs are based on lines of movement. And one of the things that, that was really unique about that is that up until that time, if you read any bodybuilding book, and believe me, I've read a few, um, the only reference you'd get for, say, to legs was the legs. There was no separation into in the quad dominant, hip dominant. And when it came to the upper back, it was just back, back training. There was no, there was no concept of horizontal pulling and vertical pulling to separate the back. And when you look at the use of tables to, to illustrate program design, you'll see 
I would use lines of movements and then select exercises to suit the lines of movements. And I'd illustrate the, the program design overall by saying, showing which lines of movements occurred on which days. And, and that technique of, of depicting a workout through the eyes of the lines of movement um, has become very popular, shall we say. And you'll see those tables used extensively in a number of publications, particularly those publications that refuse to acknowledge the source. So lines of movement was the first thing that I think was really different. That led to also to my um, belief as far as balance in, in, the, in the body and that if you're going to bench press twice a week, you'd have to row twice a week. Whatever you're going to do twice, you'd have to do the opposite twice a week. In reality, very few people spend that much time in the gym and are able to do that much or the opposite. So the, the, the focus on balance meant that I was only doing each line of movement once a week. And whether or not people realise that or not, but it certainly was effective for, for most people. Now, let's talk about balance for the moment. The, the transition that I was working against was what I saw in the shift from the, 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 the Reeves, the Steve Reeves and Reg Park physique through to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I saw a, a, an increased rounding of the shoulders, an increased rounding of the upper back, so kyphosis. And I saw why those ones were occurring. And that's one of the reasons I developed lines of movement was to avoid those, those major two major imbalances. So when you avoid, uh, say, if you got away from benching twice a week and started making sure that you're pulling as much as you're pushing, that gave you a chance to avoid those imbalances, assume they weren't already there. Now, when we talk about moving forwards with Get Buff, we've got two new imbalances that weren't, weren't really present in epidemic form back then. They were the only two things... The, the two main things that were hurting us from an upper body perspective and the lower body, the quad dominance. Um, and that led to any running sport athlete having a, an, an increased incidence of hamstring and lower, lower extremity strains, which I was able to correct with my understanding of balance between the hip dominant and the quad dominant. So, which leads us to the, the third point, which I would call, uh, I call prioritization or the re recognition of prioritization. So respecting prioritization, and, and in my in my writings, I identified three types of prioritization that included the sequence with which you do things, the relative volume with which you do things, and the load potential. So for example, it's quite common um, in the late 90s for people to do a leg curl to balance in their own mind uh, a squat. And the load potential of a, of a single joint movement like a leg curl was nowhere near um, the load potential of the squat. Now, nothing's changed. These days, people perceive the Romanian deadlift will do the same for them too. Whilst it's probably a higher low potential than a leg curl, it's still not going to do it. So balance meant the need to put the weak muscles first. So the programs were all designed based upon a generic interpretation of what the majority had weak first. So the get Buff programs led with Hip dominant instead of quad dominant, they led with horizontal pulling instead of horizontal pushing. So I flipped them around. But then, and I also, as I also explained in, in particular, Get Buff One, which is a really good um, dissertation on program design and, and reversal of sequencing, I reversed the prioritizations uh, from, week, from program to program, which is, I think, is critical to, to ensure balance. So the three things I've covered so far are lines of movement, balance, and prioritization, which is also tied in. The next thing that I think made uh, the program so unique at the time was speed of movement. Now, speed of movement was a concept that I, again, developed in the 1980s, late 1980s, and I actually hadn't published on that until 
at least not in, in mainstream publications, till the late 1990s. But unlike Lines of Movement, Speed of Movement had got out. There was one North American who was pretty keen to share Lines of Movement. Um, but nevertheless, the GEPAR programs were unique because of the application of the, the three-digit timings and, and the recognition of, of speed of movement. So the speed of movement allowed us to vary the speed. There's a time and a place for a slow speed movement. There's a time and place for an explosive movement. And knowing, knowing when uh, is part of the wisdom of training. So the next thing I think that made the programs unique was the introduction of control drills. Now, in Gap Path 1, I talked about them, but I didn't build into the program because I didn't want to scare everyone all at once. And I'll explain why. There's a reason I didn't want to create too much change at once. So I, I, I referenced them, but I didn't build them in the program. And in Gap Path 2, I built them into the program. So control drills was a concept I've been working on right throughout the 1990s, where I realized that if there was a weakness that the athletes had, we could probably do a little bit of insurance work on it at the start of the workout. So if we did a little bit of single joint, isolated, really controlled movement, it would A, warm the joints up, B, it would increase the recruitment of the stabilizing muscle groups, and C, it would provide an overall uh, correction of volume to the weaker muscle groups. Because one of the greatest criticisms of, of, of therapists, physical therapists in the 1990s, was that the athletes were developing gross motor patterns and their stabilizers were being neglected. So I took a combination of drills, some which I learned from physical therapists and some I developed, and I built them into what I call a control drill program. Now, again, this is a common uh, philosophy used now throughout the world, but again, people don't really know why or where it came from, but it all began in the Get Buff programs, the control drills. So the next one we'll talk about is the number of exercises. Now, if you read, say, Bill Pearl's book, Keys to the Universe, which was a classic back in its time, he talked about the need for a bodybuilder to develop diversity in lines of movement. And that's what I did in the Get Buff program because in the 1990s, most sports strength training and bodybuilding training had moved to, to pretty much the, just a few exercises, everyone going heavy, multiple sets and, and on the big movements and you know, the big four or big three, whatever you want to call it. And so what I did was I, I went back to one set per exercise and I used up to 12 different exercises. And that was a little bit of a throwback, I think, to, to earlier bodybuilding methods where they'd say, okay, at the beginning, you need to have more diversity in lines of movement, where everyone had been rushing to specialise in lines of movement. So the, the number of exercises were high, but at the same time, the number of sets were low. So I introduced, or I wouldn't say introduced, but I popularised or contributed to the popularisation of low volume training. Now, at that time, Mike Mansler was another... Uh, former bodybuilder who was promoting low volume training, but he was also promoting high intensity all the time. So that was a slightly different concept where I was teaching people to do, you know, between eight and 12 work sets. Now, at that time, believe me, people were doing that many sets just for one muscle group. And if you understand the history of uh, anabolic use in bodybuilding and, and the basically the, the mainstream approach, in the 1980s, the, the scientific literature said anabolics don't work. The bodybuilders were using it, but people weren't embracing it because they were told it didn't work. So they weren't really getting a result on the high volume training methods. Now, nowadays, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows they work, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody from the from a primary school kid onwards is, is using some form of ergogenic aid just about. So they're able to handle higher volumes, but that doesn't make them operable. I still I still don't believe that just because you can handle them due to your increased uh, inverted commas recovery aids, um, that that makes them optimal at all. So I'm, I still support moving forward to the, the lower volume approach. Another unique aspect about the, the Get Buff programs was the use of pre-fatigue sequences, especially in, in Program 1. So I used Program 1 
as a very much a corrective phase to correct the muscle imbalances. So I'd reverse the sequence using the weaker muscle groups earlier in the week and the stronger muscle groups later in the week. But I also use small movements through to large movements. Now, the pre-fatigue concept is, is not a unique concept. It's not a new concept. It just wasn't popular at the time. So that was a bit of a throwback to some old bodybuilding training methods. And another unique aspect of the Get Buff programs was a back offset. And the back offset was something like, that I was influenced by Bill Starr, and I'm sure Bill will, will cite someone else that he was influenced by using it. I, I don't think they use that word, the, the word the back offset. I think that was a word I come up with. But the idea of using a higher, uh, higher rep set at the end to, to actually achieve more work when your nervous system was more fired up. And I know, um, I think, um, who's the other black to use it? Uh, Fred Hatfield also popularised it um, in his bodybuilding books. So it's a phenomenal technique if you use wisely. Now, when I say use wisely, Bill Phillips went on to use it, but he used it on every single exercise in his Body for Life program. Um, and, and when you use tricks and, and, and then neural tricks to, to increase your work capacity, there's still a price to be paid. You still have to count, uh, recover from that. So if you if you kill the goose that laid the golden egg, you know the goose just doesn't get up in the morning. So you have to be careful with how many exercises and how often you're using back offsets. So there are the first eight things. Now we enter two two areas. Number nine, abdominals first. So by by the late 90s, I was very clear in my mind that everybody or majority of people, majority of the time, should be doing abdominals first. Uh, and I, I, I put that in the the programs uh, again. Get buff. And I want to come back and talk about the unique exercises in a minute, but I didn't throw too many surprises into Get Buff One, but I wrote about it in Get Buff One and included it in subsequent programs. So abdominals first is something that I do continue to maintain. It's a discussion in itself, but it hasn't been taken up. Ironically, when you look at the writings of, of Bill Pearl, going back through the decades, he's, he referenced abdominals first in his muscle groups. So whether or not he was recommending them done first in the workout, I can't say for sure, but he was definitely referenced them as um, the first muscle group. So we're showing a value of importance to abdominals. Now, abdominals first is something that's still not being embraced, but at least I killed the, the witch's tail or the wife's tail or, you know, in this politically correct world, I know I've got to be careful. But there was this belief around that, you know, if you did the abdominals first, the fatigue stabilizes, increase your risk of injury in the squat. And so I, I taught repetitively that will help me understand how you know how the abdominals are working in the squat because they're not doing that much you know they're doing some critical stuff but it's pretty low level contraction um and so i really didn't see that was uh, an adequate reason now if if you do high volume abdominal training yes you will you will fatigue the entire body your entire nervous system so it, the the rel the relative amount of volume uh, of abdominal training you do should should be a consideration but the sequencing you should really move from up front so then the next thing we talk about is stretching. So I, I, I recommended the pre-training stretching then and, and, and continue to do so. Now, of everything I taught and of all these 10 key points that I'm raising, it would have to be the least embraced one. And that is because from the mid-90s onwards, we've gone through a period of inverted commas research, and um, I use the word loosely, uh, where the conclusions are reached that stretching makes you weak. Um, and that's a discussion in itself. I won't open that Pandora's box unless I get a question. But it's still one of the things that made my programs unique and continues to this day. And the last of the 10 points is unique body weight exercises. And that's worth a little bit of extra discussion. So I was a bit scared when I gave my program to um, the editor of Team Mag because I wasn't sure whether he'd publish it. I've been writing for them for, for a year or so. And 
Um, to his credit, he did publish it, but if you have a look at his wording, he sort of, it was a bit apologetic at the start, saying, listen, you've got to give it a go. Put, a, put aside your scepticism. I know there's, there's some exercises here that don't involve external weight, some really weird exercises, but just give it a go and you'll be surprised. So these exercises were uh, a combination of exercises that I took out of other genres and exercises that I innovated. Because when I developed my lines of movement awareness, I'd come to the conclusion that there just was a lack of hip-dominant, single joint unilateral movements full stop. When you look at it, there was a lot of quad exercises in the market, but there weren't many hip dominance. So I had to really scramble for hip dominant exercises. So some of the ones I took out of other genres, um, doggy extensions, I called them, uh, hip thigh extensions, for example, lying on your back, arms out at 90 degrees, either with one leg or two, lifting your hips up off the ground. Now they, that movement was done by Jane Fonda in, in her workouts, etc. It was common in the aerobic classes, but nobody in the gym was doing that movement. Now, you've come back 20 years later, and this is the discussion in itself, of course. People are now loading that movement with a bar across the hips, which is a discussion in itself. However, nobody had brought that movement out of the aerobics room until I did, along with a number of others. Um, you know, single leg back extensions, uh, prone hip thighs where you support the, the leg and, and bring the, sorry, support the trunk and bring the leg up, etc. But some of the unique ones I've developed were the, the single leg stiff legged deadlift, which was very quickly turned into a, um, an exercise that looked like uh, it was a cross between an oil rig in Southern California and someone doing ballet. Um, there was a single leg stiff leg deadlift, the bent leg single leg deadlift, um, and there were a few knee movements that, that I developed to, to help warm the knee up, one of them being the assisted squat holding onto a vertical frame. Uh, and there were, there were a few others that, that were unique and I brought to the market. So the fact that um, that was a bit of a shock to everybody back in those days to think that a, a hardcore badass strength trainer was going to get on the ground and do a bodyweight exercise that was really paralleling or mimicking something that the girls were doing in the aerobic room at the same time was a pretty tough pill to swallow. But uh, 20 years later, you know, which it spawned an entire industry, you know, the, 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 and I take no credit for that. Um, in fact, it's embarrassing, the functional training industry, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to be talked about there as well. But it was a shock to the system. It was really unique back then. Um, and it was also an extension of my belief that until someone demonstrated the ability to control their, their body weight, they didn't deserve or hadn't earned the right to have external loading. Now, that might not have been a completely original thought, but it was, it was an original wording. I reinforced it because so, so many people are squatting and deadlifting stuff and they can't even do the, the exercise properly, which is another discussion in itself, which has been exacerbated um, you know, in, in the era we're in and moving forwards with the CrossFits and the um, kettlebells, et cetera, et cetera. So I've done a fair bit of talking. I've, I've covered what I see were the 10, 10, some of the 10 things that really made uh, the Get Buff program unique. And and, I, and it has been absorbed or swallowed up a little bit in the market confusion now because uh, everybody now has decided to become an exercise inventor. In fact, there are people who will even name themselves after their muscle group of their exercises that they invented. But I didn't set out to invent, I set out to serve and the athletes needed a more balanced approach to strength training and that's what they got. Uh, and I took that information and packaged it into the Get Buff for everybody. And so uh, between 1999 and 2003, I think more people around the world, uh, when, when the Book of Moscow came, more people around the world were using my training methods, generally speaking, um, in, in non-competitive sport than, than anyone else's. So it was a, a pretty strong influence era and then it got lost in the noise and the mess. To some extent. Okay, so we've got quite a few on the call. I know many of you, if you've got anything to share, I'd like to hear 
um, your own experiences from the gap off. We can talk about the past and we can start talking about the future and where we will go with it um, and what the challenges are moving forward. So waiting for that first hand electronically, if you can work out how to put your hand up electronically. It's, it was interesting. One of my coaches said to me and some of the coaches I've introduced to the KSI coaching program don't believe that your the KSI methods apply to, to bodybuilding. And I, I'm kind of a bit taken back by that comment, considering that the gap after as a four book sequel is probably the only four book sequel in the history of this of the industry. I'm not talking about books that just have jump around in topic. I'm talking about books that build on educationally and program wise the previous book. That there's um, in a dozen, there's a dozen or so products uh, covering DVDs and books uh, that I've, I've worked with national champions in male and female, multiple countries in bodybuilding uh, that I wrote for seven years for TMAG, Book of Muscle, published 2003 with Men's Health. Uh, prior to that, 2000 and 2001, uh, six part article, longest article series, and arguably the most popular program article series ever published in, in Men's Health um, America. So it was sort of a bit of a surprise that one of my coaches was telling me that the young people thought the, the, the KSI way wasn't really suited to bodybuilding. Um, and maybe they hadn't looked around enough. Maybe the, 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 their thoughts had been drowned out by the mess on the market because there is a lot on the market now. It's, um, the internet has opened up some very interesting doors. So we're looking for any comment, any question moving forwards regarding the GetBuff training methods. Is anybody? Oh, go ahead, Rick. I was gonna go ahead, Rick. Yeah, hi. Um, I've got a question about yeah your body weight um, innovations, etc. And just thinking with the advent of or the increase in injury rates, um, do you think that if because obviously you know now nowadays a lot of the professional sporting clubs are trying to fast track uh, their athletes with, uh, to get stronger. But then injury rates are going through the roof. So, if do you, do you think hypothetically, because they probably won't do it, but if they reverted back to a body weight program instead, doing one of your um, innovative programs, that even though they might they may not get as stronger as quickly, that potentially the transfer will actually be better in the long term or even in the short term to performance. Yeah. So there's a few things there. First of all, if they if they did if they did simply the get buff program, they'd get a better result than what they're getting. Now, whether or not we eliminate their their injuries, I can't say because it's important to discuss the, the contribution or the cause of their injuries. But keep in mind that I came through the 80s and 90s professionally and personally, and I came to the conclusion after and unfortunately I had an ACL reconstruction in the early 80s after being hit by a one-ton vehicle when I was sitting stationary on my motorbike. So I got tackled from behind. So I came through one of the early reconstructions, 1983, I think it was done. So I'd been re rehabilitating my own ACL for 10 years by 1993. And I'd come in that time, I'd realised that we weren't serving. Now, I'd also come to the conclusion that simply getting a boy heavy or girl heavy uh, or strong in, uh, you know, in a squat or a deadlift or a power plane, you know, is that optimally transferring to sport? And for the most part, I suggest not, which is why transfer to sport for me is, is almost um, – the loading they're using is, is, is not related to their performance enhancement. It's not related to their to transfer. And that's a tough pill for the market to swallow because even now, like I saw a, a, a post on someone's Instagram account in the last few weeks where they said strength is the most important quality. 
both in performance enhancement and injury prevention, and if in doubt, just get stronger. Um, that 1990s mentality, when, when strength training was first being embraced by the scientists in 1990, in the 1990s, by the late 1990s, everybody was saying, you know, go heavy, as heavy as you can, because it's been scientifically supported. And we're still, 20 years later, we're still in that. Now, you know, when I go to events like Swiss event, which is a phenomenal event, uh, it, it's attended mostly by big people, strong people who lift the shitload and believe that strength is the most important thing. I, I don't make myself too popular, but if you're an athlete, I, I'm going to tell you outright, I, I'm not sure whether you're doing doing yourself a service. But of course, first of all, getting stronger in, in any lift is no guarantee of transfer to sport. Number two, anything you do that doesn't transfer is a risk. It's a risk because from the from the simple perspective, it's it's taking up some of your recovery ability. It's taking up some of your short term and long term energy. And we have we have you know like we can we can extend our energy levels, but we have a, you know a relatively finite. I mean, human only lives at best 120 years in, hypothetically, uh, re realistically mostly 80. So we have a finite amount of energy. So anything that you're doing that's not transferring is first of all interfering with your, your recovery and your ad adaptation. And secondly, it's an opportunity cost. You could be out for doing something more productively. But thirdly, if you're developing any muscle imbalances or any wear and tear as a result of doing that non-productive activity, then there's a lot of questions to be asked. And we are in an era where we haven't moved. In fact, we might have got even got worse, where we're continually conditioned to believe that the stronger we are, the better the athlete. Um, there was a time when it was about how big you were. Uh, you know, if you look like a bodybuilder, you must be a good athlete. And that was reinforced by really popular bodybuilding um, ad in the bodybuilding magazines in America in the late 80s, early 90s, where this whole range of bodybuilders were dressed up in different sports and that re re reinforced that, you know, if you look buffed, you must be a good athlete. But we're definitely still in an era where, you know, the, the stronger you are, the better athlete you're going to be. And that's, I mean, it's, it's just so flawed. If I, take, if I take all the disciplines from the Winter Olympics, for example, and I'm just using that as an example, I'm going to tell you 75% off the top of my head, 75% of those disciplines would not benefit from from exceeding their body weight in a squat. It's, it's it's obviously it is subjective, but I've got no doubt that in 50 years' time, what I'm teaching will be will be recognised. So, this pursuit of strength, a, is counterproductive. In, in it's not transferring. It's 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 an opportunity cost. It's an energy drain. But it's developing muscle imbalances and joint damage that didn't need to be there, and they weren't there because Rick, the injury incidence now is arguably five times higher than it was 20 years ago. Now, the athletes are five times stronger. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to start coming some loose cause effect relationship. Now, other things have changed, including the, the depopularization and, the, and the, 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 the fear tactics have been used to discourage stretching. And there's also, you know, they're taking loading down, down in the ages and they're taking increased volume down and down in the ages. And so there's a number of factors that contribute to it. But strength training, is, is arguably the single biggest cause of injuries. And when I say strength training, it needs to be qualified. Inappropriate strength training, developing muscle imbalances and causing joint wear for no return. So yes, Rick, um, strength training is a huge issue. Um, my attitude to young athletes is if you don't touch a bar until you've left high school, I'm really happy for you because at least their bodies are stronger and can tolerate whatever imbalances that are going to be thrown at them in their program design. It's like vaccinations with children. 
if you can delay the vaccination until the body's a bit more mature, it has a better ha ability to handle the toxins in the, in the vaccination. I don't want to open that parent or its box. So what I'm, what I'm recognising, just about all strength training programs are going to be imbalanced. And I'm a bit biased unless, unless one of my coaches has written them. So the later they are exposed to that imbalance, the better, because their bodies are, are, are better formed. Um, you know, the, the, the damage that we're causing the younger generation these days is it's worth a class action suit, but, you know, that's another story. Long answer. Sorry, Rick. No, it's fantastic, Ian. Yeah. Um... Sorry, Rick, I've just got to bring you back. Rick, I'll just bring you back. Rick, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear Um Yeah, I had a, a client comment to me um, just the other day about how he felt. He felt that doing the body weight exercises actually felt more natural to him and that his body moved more naturally through space, so to speak, and that he felt like he was getting more muscle recruitment um, than using machines and all the other implements. So that was interesting to hear a client. Exactly so the majority of athletes got to manage their body in space. And if they can't manage their body, if they don't adapt to their body, so if, they, if, if I'm a soccer player, I'm pushing off the ground, but I'm managing my body. Like I'm not... I don't have a 100 kilo barbell at the other end of my body. So if I, if I need to feel that to, to be able to learn how to switch my body, and I've got a problem. And when you hear that athlete and comments from the athlete, oh, I need to have more weight of the bar so I can get a feel for what I'm doing. You're like, yeah, it is easier, but it's, it's only a product of your training that you feel that. Like, um, the, the, the transfer to sport will be far higher when you de-emphasize de load and, and, and increase the emphasis on the body weight. Now, that in itself is is and is going to cause is going to cause and going to cause an over cause an loading the bar on their hip for a movement that started 20 years ago. Like I introduced what I call um, supine hip line, uh, supine single or double hip thigh extension in the gym. 20 years later, everyone's trying to lift as much as they can. We're going to have the same thing going backwards. You know, the 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 whole body only body weight is starting to come up. You know. Like, Throwing out all weight training, and like we did the leg extension, the leg curl, we threw it out because it was bad. How that is, I'm not sure, but uh, we're going to go through an overreaction where you know only body weight is done. So we've got to be a little bit more balanced in our viewpoint. But the athlete will feel far more transfer from body weight focused exercises. How's that? Yeah, it's great, Ian. Thanks. Yeah, it's great, Ian. Thanks. So we appreciate. Rick with his hand up there and the floor is open again on any topic of getting buff past or into the future. So I have got some questions I'd like to learn. In the 1980s, one of the biggest challenges was people weren't getting their muscle size because the volume was excessive and drug use wasn't as common. And I'm not talking about drug use in, in, in bodybuilding or sport, but I'm talking about drug use in general pop. Now I'd suggest that drug use is not any more common. It's, it, it went from a period where the, the medical and, and, and uh, academic communities just blatantly said it didn't work to now uh, people are, are being offered hormone replacement therapy over a certain age, et cetera, at certain you know, testosterone levels, et cetera. So the bottom line, people have got more ergogenic aids than ever before. And, and maybe uh, their inability to, to put on weight or muscle mass is no longer the number one limiting factor. I'd like to hear your opinions. What what are some of the things that you think people are frustrated by? Because for me in the 80s and 90s, it was I just can't put on weight. Uh, and, and I can give some great examples of that. But what is it 
in, in this area, you think, what are the limiting factors for the average person trying to get buffed? Don't be shy. I'm pretty keen to hear what you're seeing in the marketplace. Victor. Yeah, so I think one of the limiting factors. Sorry, there's some echo. Someone's got to be. I'll mute myself and then you keep going. Yeah, so I think one of the limiting factors is that um, the quality of food these days aren't as good. So it can't seem to be eating like good quality food and getting um getting the required uh, nutrition value out of it so like for myself uh, back in the day when i was trying to get more weight uh, and more mess on uh, i find that i just have to eat everything in sight and uh, i don't usually feel very good about that so in this day and age how would you advise uh, going about uh, about doing this uh, about doing this yeah, great question I, I think that's a really smart point because the food degradation in, in the last 20 years has been significant. And, and, and back in the day, people would just change their macronutrient volume or, or ratios and, and they'd get a result. I, I, I don't think there is a switch onto this, but I agree with you completely that the food quality is so poor that this is a challenge. You might be having the required amount of macronutrients, but the, the toxins, the poisons, the pesticides and, and the other chemicals that are in your food may be negating the metabolic changes occurring in the body or the digestive changes in the body such that it, it, it becomes mute what you're eating. And I think that is occurring. And I think the increased incidence of um, food allergies, et cetera, is, is indicative of that. So today, it's, it's more energy, more time has to be put into your food source than used to have to. And I like... Um, I like people being broad-minded about their food. I'll give an example. Bill Pearl later in his career realised that he wanted to reduce his uh, his red meat and he felt better after he did so. Now, you tell a, a bodybuilder these days about that and they want to they take their, their steak knife and knife you. But I was so impressed with what Bill was willing to do with modifying his diet to suit his own needs that so I actually sought his permission and in, two, in the Get Buff 4 included some of his comments about bodybuilding without red meat uh, or as a vegetarian so I, I like to push people's awareness in the, into the diversity of, of possibilities that you may need to optimize your food in uh, for your food results and and the leading subject of that these days is a food source and i, I don't know how popular it is i don't think it's very popular but we're talking about ideally grown locally, ideally grown organically, ideally pulled out of the ground or killed recently. Uh, some of the fundamentals of, of eating that is really difficult to, to determine because you can go down to your local farmer's market and ask a question, but you're, there's a lot of faith in that. Unless you knew the person who grew it, how do you know that they really didn't use chemicals in the growing process? How do you know it is truly organic? And you certainly, I don't think, you don't think you can trust the food labelling to, to any great extent because the word organic is thrown around fairly loosely. So to get the result, you need to make a far more effort than you did 20 years ago to pursue clean food. And clean food costs more. That's, that's, that's something I think is a real tough reality for young people. I know looking back to, to when I was a, a younger person, especially going through university, you know, money was an issue. 
in that there wasn't a lot of it. Um, so they've really challenged there because whilst organic food is becoming available in the, in the, in the world, it does cost a lot more than, 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 the, than the, your chain store food. So there is an economic reality, and that's no different than the, you know, we haven't opened this Pandora's box yet, but that's no different than the, the, the vitamins or nutritional supplements that people are using. There's a difference in quality, and that's reflected in cost, and a lot of people just want to take the cheap route. So I'm actually fairly critical of the, the market for not paying enough attention. If we, if we worried about less about what's the latest so-called testosterone booster that, like, the last 20 didn't work, so why is this one going to work? And worried more about where our food came from. You know, more effort needs to be put into the, the origin of food. So I, I think you, you've raised a very good point. Thank you, Victor. So I'm keen to learn from others. If you can share with me what you think the people around you are struggling with, what's their frustration in getting buffed? As I said in the 80s, it was not understanding that to train like these bodybuilders on their 60 set workouts that the only way they could do 60 sets was use the same inverted commas vitamin protocol um alternatively use low volume training and they could put on weight but that, those i think that, that's changed one of the challenges of the modern era has been raised by victor where he said clean food and therefore the promise of the food the macronutrient promise of the food to be fulfilled the food origin needs to be vetted a lot more. So looking for any other input, any other thoughts about challenges faced by our world today in the pursuit of getting buffed? Yes, go, Rick. Yeah, I think one of the... And um, uh, for people and... Um, would be yeah uh, that there's a short-term gratification thing like um, they don't seem to have the patience to want to take the time to build their body over a long period of time and it's like the no the no pain no gain kind of attitude um, more is more is better rather than less is more I think that's probably and you know that's probably the professionals they saw so-called professionals they see giving the advice, perhaps, perhaps it's their fault. Well, I can tell you that's one thing that hasn't changed um, in, in the 20 years, uh, the instant gratification. And I believe that marketing has perhaps reinforced it because the marketing time frame is getting shorter and shorter. There was a time, for example, when in Team Mag used to come out once a week and then they went to you know, every day and then you probably get multiple emails a day. And so I think... Um, the whole world is continuing to go in that direction. And you can see in a person's body, especially if they're simply training for physique, you can see that instant gratification approach by their body. The, the tough thing for me to watch is that these the, the people don't know what they're doing in their body. They're doing stuff that's damaging their body and they don't know it. Um, they'll only know it when they're hurting so much or they can't lift their hand above their head. And uh, that's the discussion itself. So I that, that, appreciate that input, Rick, and that, that's obviously something that has changed. Anthony. So Anthony, I can see you, I just can't hear you. Okay, Anthony, you, yeah, that's it. Hopefully you can talk now. So I'm gonna assume Anthony's microphone is not working. So if you wanna shoot me that on, on Messenger, uh, Anthony, and I'll, I'll 
share with the group. So to build on what Rick said before, challenges moving forward. Uh, sorry, Victor said the food degradation is such that the need for basic supplementation has grown. And I, I'm not talking about your BCAAs, your, your, your taurine and your glutamine and your, your creatine. Uh, they're not fundamentals. They're add-ons. The, the, the basics are the building blocks your vitamins and minerals and your macronutrients and your fiber. So the relatively lack of attention that's been paid historically to that group, probably more so back in uh, you know, the, you know, the 50s and the 60s, a lot more readings about that before people got a bit more esoteric about the so-called performance enhancement supplements, which really don't work. So one of the challenges is being able to redirect someone back to the need for fundamentals. There's, there's, there, are, there are multivitamins that can get you a better result than all your so-called performance enhancement supplements, the BCAAs, your, your glutamine and your, your creatine combined. And, and that's in part because of the, the need, the lack of uh, the deficiencies in the food. The, the two main uh, musculoskeletal conditions that I'm seeing adding to the rounded, rounded shoulders and rounded back by horizontal pushing dominance of the 80s and 90s and the quad dominance and the squatting, so with the anterior rotation of the pelvis leading to increase lower extremity strains. What we're seeing now, and I wrote about this in my most recent book, um, How to Transfer, is two whole new categories of muscle imbalance that, that really didn't exist in the, in the epidemic way that they do now. And the first one I'll talk about is thoracic um, dominance. And thoracic dominance is where you're using uh, your, your thoracic extensors to overcome everything. So you can see thoracic dominance in a, in a bent over row, you can see it in a deadlift, a squat, you know, any, any involvement whether they're either stabilizing or they're a prime mover. And what it means is that if, you, if, you, if you're using them in a, in a certain way, which I describe as a, a dominant way, they're dominating the movement, it means that another muscle groups are being neglected, number one. So, for example, in the deadlift and squat, your legs are doing less and your upper back's doing more. And secondly, what it's doing is it's creating a dysfunction in the, in, the, in the function of the lower back. So you're getting what, uh, instead of pivoting at the pelvis, pivoting at the hip joint, there's a pivot in, in the, the spine uh, at, the, at the lumbar thoracic junction there, and that becomes a secondary pivot point. So there's no control, therefore, of the pelvis. Uh, there's the anterior rotation of the pelvis during the lift in the, in the squat and deadlift which is shortening the hip flexors, increasing the arch in the lower back. Basically, there's nothing good about thoracic extension. And it's been exacerbated by two primary factors, in my opinion. One being the quest for load under fatigue. So for example, in the CrossFit mentality, you take a movement that there was a time when, when uh, there was the wisdom of doing no more than six reps in that movement, where you're doing a snatch and a clean for high reps. And the only way that's going to get done is with technical breakdown. So technical breakdown is ignored, and any any way to get it up is okay, as long as it's as long as you get it up. And you know, obviously, there's a time and a place for that. But if it's done on a regular basis, you're going to create the muscle imbalances that we're seeing, such as what I call thoracic dom uh, dominance, where there's a loss of of the ability to use the hips, the glutes, the hamstrings, and the lower back in the manner intended in coordination with the quadriceps. So complete lack of control, a loss of control of the pelvis. And the other major contributing factor over and above lifting under fatigue with technical breakdown is long levers 
So whenever you have the weight to the front of your body, you're inducing an extension through the spine by simply the change of the center of gravity. And the extreme positions that were found uh, in the standing press, which led to the abolishment of the standing press as an Olympic movement in Olympic lifts, I think from about after 1972 or just prior to 72, that sort of extension is extreme, but we're seeing that in, in people's posture now because whenever you squat to the front, shoulder press to the front, you are shifting instead of gravity and creating an extension backwards. But more than that, when you have a long lever to the front, such as in some of the kettlebell throws, you are again creating that. And it's very hard to, to reverse. Now, if an athlete doesn't run, they just stand, That the pain that will result will take longer to come up upon them. But if they're a running sport athlete involved in movement, lifting, uh, load, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, under movement, then they'll pay the price earlier. So they're the two main contributors to uh, thrust extension. Load, uh, technical breakdown of fatigue, typically in CrossFit, and long levers to the front of the body, which is basically a, a lot of your kettlebell lifts. Now, does that mean I think everything they do is wrong or bad? Not at all. And I, I've got more hate mail from from um, kettlebellers in the last 12 months than I have since I told people that the endurance base was a myth. Uh, I mean, I've been got a lot of hate mail over the years when I've when I've started this uh, these reality checks. But um, you know, I've got a lot of good friends in uh, who, who love the kettlebell. So you know, there's time, place for everything. But it's like saying uh, driving a car fast is not a risk. You know, I love driving motor vehicles fast, and, and, but there's going to be a risk. You know, I'm, I'm involved in um, motorsports, and you know, you're fast, you fast go, the, the more of the risk. It's just reality. It doesn't make it bad. It just, it just is. So that's my um, disclaimer for those who want to throw those flaming knives at me. And the other uh, major imbalance we're seeing moving forwards is rotation in the spine and rotation in the spine is arguably the toughest one to correct and in the 80s the only time i'd see it is with a professional golfer and now it's really common so if you if you're ever standing above somebody like in a sports venue looking down and you can see the rotation of their spine i mean everybody's got some degree of rotation but the degree of rotation we're seeing now is epidemic and that is a byproduct of the overuse of unilateral multiplanar movements. So, you know, one arm this or one arm that in a dynamic multiplanar way, because it's very difficult to correct or prevent an imbalance. And I'll give a really simple example. This isn't necessarily multiplanar, but you understand what I'm saying. When someone's doing a lot of lunging and they say, well, it's a unilateral movement, I'm saying it's not a unilateral movement, it's a semi-unilateral movement, because at any point in time, how much of your percentage of load have you got in your front and how much have you got in your back? Your dominant leg will always take more than your non-dominant leg, or it should. For example, if you are doing a lunge and, and in theory you should be 60% on your front foot and 40% on your back foot, when your front foot's forward, it will be taking 70%. When your back foot forward, it won't be taking 40%, it will be taking 50%. So anything that's unilateral or pseudo-unilateral and, and exacerbated with a, a rotation or a multiplanar activity, which describes so many popular movements these days, has an inherent risk of creating a rotation that in the past would only be developed by the use of a, a golf or 
you know, lacrosse, running with a lacrosse stick or anything where you're running uh, rotated. So there's some of the things that um, I'm, I'm aware of uh, and I spoke about in a recent book. I'm just checking with Anthony. Anthony, have you been able to come off um, that mute? Is your audio working now? And for those of you just joining the call, we're looking for any input now, any questions about your get buff training or any input about what you see as the challenges that others or yourself are facing at the moment. I'm trying to get a, a pulse of what are the common frustrations in the world of get buffed contemporarily. Anthony, can you hear me? Okay, give it a go, Anthony. That looks like Anthony's audio is a little bit challenged. I'm just put everybody's hands down now and see if we have any new hands. Any final questions as we come into our wrap? Any final questions? Any final comments? So those of you new to the technology here, either just take yourself off mute and speak up or put your hand up electronically speaking. There's a button on the panel. Okay, is that you, Anthony? Give it another go. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Certainly can. So I just think one of the other big things is really neglection of stretching. Um, you see people do endless sets of horizontal pushing in particular and quad dominant stuff, but the amount of growth they would get from reducing that volume and increasing the quality stretching and tissue manipulation work is phenomenal and it's just so sad to see people miss such a critical aspect of of um, hypertrophy through stretching itself. That's a great point and I'm going to tell you this, that the biggest quads in the history of bodybuilding come from people who can do the splits. Yeah. This correlation has been completely missed. I mean, hypertrophy and, and length of tissue are highly correlated now we spend so much time hearing about how stretching makes you weak well listen if i did a bench press max and 30 seconds later you got me to a bench a bench press test strength training would make me weak too yeah. so the, the, if you want to dig a bit deeper on the on the stretching research it's, there are some question marks shall we say about it but mm. the world's been taught not to stretch yeah. and yeah. tissue work is is is, is popularized uh, in, if you use the foam roller. Now, a few things here. Very few people know how to use the foam roller. It's an innate object, it doesn't think, and, and it can't do the job for you. You actually have to use it in a way to get a result. And secondly, the role of the foam roller in the upper body is a lot more challenging than the role of the foam roller in the lower body. So, and it, generally it's also speaking, very hard to go ahead, it's very hard it's to relax really in some of those positions with the foam roller. Yep, it's it's like the popularization of, of, of um, partner massage. You still competed to give to Paul. I mean, if two athletes are one's massaging each other, one's getting fatigued while the other's getting result, then they swap over and you wonder whether the work they just did on the other person has negated the benefit they received from the other person. Mm. Yep. So the role of tissue length and tissue softness is completely overlooked in in uh, in all pursuit of get buffed. Absolutely, but that's, can, you know, that's almost like a, a, a little secret. 
Yeah, just to add to that, Ian, add to I, that, Ian. I personally with myself, there are some weeks where I do very little strength training in terms of volume, but the shitload of volume in stretching, will just look at you and say, you know, well, you've, been, you've been working hard at the gym, and actually, I haven't actually only done maybe two or three days, maybe 15 minutes max, and that's about it. And that's the, the wisdom and the maturity you have from understanding what contributes to optimal results. And it's not always pushing, pushing, pushing in strength training. It's You have to balance your training and bring uh, components up when they're lagging. And that, la that the lag is typically in the, the length and the tension of the muscles. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. You know, in my early, I've probably been doing eight to ten hours a week. Absolutely. And I learned this from working with athletes in sports where, for example, we do a beautiful 12-week off-week off-season program, a GPP program, but we come into the season and they'd be lucky to get in the gym once a week for months yeah. on end. And even then, mm. it wasn't high volume. It might, might have had a little bit of intensity, but nothing too extreme because they couldn't fatigue themselves for the upcoming competition. And they weren't losing too much. In fact, when they went back in the gym, they had a further spurt. So the the fear and the paranoia of someone who doesn't get in the gym every week about how much they're going to lose, um, it might be a little bit overrated because there's actually some regeneration that could occur uh, in between that, that result in, in an equal, if not a better result. So there's a, mm -hmm. you know, we, we learned that the hard way in sports where we couldn't get to the gym. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty scared now because in those, in some of those exact same sports, the athletes are, are forced into the gym. Like it's, you're in the gym three times a week, no matter what. And they yeah. look like yeah. they've run a marathon when they come to play the, the sport. They look, they're mm -hmm. tired and they perform tired. Yeah. And the other thing, Ian, is the control drill. I think, I think particularly around the shoulders and the loose shoulders, the, you know, the recruitment and just the look of the muscle and the squareness is so different that when you when you don't do those, the physique looks different. And it's only little things, but they do make a difference. So muscle shape as well as size, muscle shape is, is influenced by the relationship of joints and the shape of bones. Mm. So when you open your joints up, you change your relationship. You change the, the potential for a different shape. So these are subtleties that you're realizing when you're after doing. So you haven't sat there and looked at the latest interpretation of the research. Because if you actually read the research, you can see the flaws in it. But if you read yeah. the interpretation of the research, it's very convincing. Yeah. And people yeah. people believe it, but you haven't done that. You've gone out, you, you've probably been, you know, on this path for the best part of 20 years and you've learned some things for yourself that mm. Wisdoms that aren't popularized, you know, they're, they're not popular wisdoms. And the range and of motion, range of motion in the control drills from the they just work so well together. So well together. Phenomenal outcome phenomenal together. Outcome together. And when you see someone who's very tight do a control drill under, under my supervision or supervision of a competent KSI coach, their, their range under control is about one tenth. Of what it could be yeah. and that's indicative of the amount of work that they're really doing they might they, they, they might 
feel like they're losing a lot of weight, but you've got to ask the question, if the muscle's not, not controlling, is it going in the joint? So mm. the, the, the less functional your, 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 nerves, the, your muscles are, the more loading is tolerated in the joint, the wear and tear is increased. So it's not about the amount of weight you're lifting that causes hypertrophy, and it's not in, in the first instance, all things being equal, or transfers yeah. to strength. It's, it's about the conditions under which the loading is conducted. Mm. Yeah, there's a, so if, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom. If you had a really good conditioned person, then loading could become a factor that's a difference. But in the, in the in the initial stages, the conditions under which the loading occurs. If you load someone who's shortened in their connective tissue or their joint gap is reduced, then their training is suboptimal. Their training results is suboptimal. It might be look good in the short term, but not in the long term. Hmm. Yeah, well, I can tell you. Yeah, like, well, I can tell you. You've like, got a time behind the computer. My work, my work. I won't train my chest I unless I train my chest. There's a 40, 45 minutes stretching before I'm minutes stretching. Good man. Otherwise, I find it's just going. It's just going. Yeah, good man. So rare, especially in this era of flex hate. Or as my friend Donald would say, fake news about stretching. <laughs> Thanks. Ian. I shouldn't say Frank with, with the Mueller, Mueller report about to be ended. No. Um, yeah. No. Great to have you on on the call, Anthony. Appreciate your questions. Okay. So we are in the wrap up phase. Uh, we can talk about anything you want in relation to your get buff training. Uh, definitely keen to hear your feedback about the challenges or, or the benefits you received, the challenges you face, what you think other people are facing. Because we are uh, far from finished with the Epaf range, there is more. Uh, I have and always have had plans for the book range to be expanded, and we have some other plans in the short term for expanding the support, which is why we're keen to hear about what you see as some of the frustrations and limitations people are facing. Go ahead, Rick. Try to bring yourself off mute, Rick. Hello. Um, are we able to get to the next slide? It's a bit of a, maybe a, I suppose a kind of a follow-on as far as posture goes. Um, I was wondering, have you ever pro programmed um, the old school barbell drag curl for bicep? Um, this is sort of getting buffed, everyone likes big guns. In terms of if they go to the gym, and I've started doing them myself and I've, I've actually stop doing other bicep work and just only do drag curls now because I find that I can set my scapula the way you suggest with the retraction depression and obviously do the drag curl the way it's supposed to be done, keeping the bar touching the body all the way up and I feel like it's a bit of a more natural movement I'm getting better results. Um, just honest, wondering what your opinion is on that particular exercise. So for the benefit of all the listeners, you just want to give a description of the exercise. Everyone's on the same page. Yeah, barbell drag curl, um, standing and starting in the bottom position as you normally would with uh, a normal bicep curl with a barbell, but a narrower grip. And as you curl, the, well, you don't actually curl the bar up as such. You, as you're flexing your elbows, you're keeping the bar touching the body at all times. And then when you get to full flexion, then you lower the bar in the same plane, 
so it's still touching the body all the way down again so it's almost like it'll probably look if someone was watching you it would almost look like you're doing some kind of row but it's you're standing vertical if you know what I mean um, but I find it seems to when I watch myself doing it in the mirror my posture stays more square and with the scapular retraction particularly and I, I thought maybe there's less injury less injury potential distally at the elbow joint because um, I've had some elbow issues myself through my work um, in soft tissue so I just I was wondering what the validity validity of that exercise. So there's, there's a couple of things there to talk about. What we're on the on bicycles, the first thing I really want to stress is the the, the need to stretch at the bottom end. The number of boys that I, or I guess there'll be girls in time, um, because more and more we engage in contact sport, that have torn their bicep off the bone is ridiculous. Uh, it is as a, basically a direct result of doing bicycles not, or chin-ups, especially reverse grip chin-ups, not fully stretching the bottom position. So like, it would be remiss of me not to make that point while we're on the subject of bicycles, I really want you to straighten your arms out at the bottom, which I know you're doing, Rick. So yeah, yeah. this this technique was taught to me in the 80s by a, a very experienced bodybuilder. So you've got the most uh, common way that biceps can do is conducted, if you're in the standing position, for example, is the elbows actually go forwards of the body. Yep. It allows them to lift more weight. The minute the elbows go backwards on the body, you actually reduce your weight and increase the percentage of work potentially done by the biceps. Now, whether or not you need to go to the extreme of, of, of that drag core position is a discussion itself, but it's definitely an option, a variety option. But I'm a big fan of moving the elbows backwards from the full stretch position to slightly behind the body, and then they don't move forwards from that point. So you're onto something, and if you're getting a great result with it, keep going with it. Cheers, thanks. Cheers, thanks. And it is definitely more conducive to the shape of the body. And as you know, the shape in which you load is the shape of which you adopt. One of the I've been banging on about now for, you know, since about 2010, I've spent nearly a decade promoting that concept. Go ahead, Victor. Yeah, I was wondering yeah, I was if you can expand it Psychology of uh, getting buff. Good stuff. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Good stuff. Any more? Anything more? Sorry, Victor. Had, had you finished? Yeah, first I, yeah, first I uh, mentioned things about um, like getting a bigger plate, uh, eating off a bigger plate, uh, getting a bigger shirt. That that sort of things. So I was wondering if you can expand on that. And um, given that. It's been quite a few years. If there's anything else that you learned, anything new. Yeah, good, great questions. So, to his credit, I did notice that um, some of the earlier writers spent more time. I noticed um, Bill Pearl talked about the psychology of lifting far earlier in his book than, than uh, say, the late Fred Hatfield. Um, so it sort of lost its way a little bit. But I want you to consider this, and, and, and I'm, I'm creating, probably should be telling you this, but we're working on a curriculum at the moment. Um, and the way I look at it is this, and mine is going 24 hours a day. 
Our digestive system is going 24 hours a day. Our sleep is only going for, you know, on average eight hours a day. And we only train on average a couple of hours a day, depending upon your sport, you know, commitments, etc. So if you if you prioritize your education in a holistic sense, you, you'd want to start with the things that you're doing all the time. And one of the things I've learned over the decades working with athletes is that we assume that they, everyone wants to get the same result. And we probably overlook some of the potential limiting factors that they put in their own way. I'll give some examples. There are times when an athlete says to me, Ian, I'm, a, I'm a really stiff. Uh, I come from a really stiff family. My dad was stiff. My auntie was stiff. My great-great uncle was stiff. Um, I can't get flexible. So when you're hearing that sort of psychology, you know there's a limiting belief about around it and you need to address it. Very few people are going to give you those hints when it comes to getting buff because everyone's going to tell you the same thing. Oh, yeah, I want to get this. I want to get that. I want to get this. But you'll notice that 10 people on the same program won't always get to the same end result at the same pace or the same rate. So there's definitely strategies that we can use. Now, there's some generic strategies, but there's some individualized ones. And I talk about that a little bit more in my curriculum. Um, but in essence, it's understanding the, the self-talk, the, the things we're telling ourselves. Because in the get buff, he's like, you know, I deserve to be that strong. I, I could never be that strong. I could never be that big. You know, that's something that he can do that I can't, or she can do that I can't. So there's a lot of work to be done there in the uh, in the self-talk, the, the psychology of getting buffed is a pretty important topic. And then we have physical strategies that you also alluded to that we use to support the, the mental strategies. And physical strategies include buying clothes that you're going to grow into. Um, you know, when you see someone wearing their little brother's T-shirt, I don't see as much growth potential for them because they, they already have that sense, well, I'm pretty big now. You can get that feeling of big by simply by the clothes you wear. But I would prefer you to challenge yourself and wear clothes that you don't necessarily look big in or don't feel big in um, a lot of the time. And the mirror in the gym is another thing that, you know, when we're pumped and we, we're in the gym, we all feel like we're, we miss the universe, but we're probably not. So I'm, I'm not saying don't look in the mirror. In fact, the mirror is the discussion itself, but I'm saying I'm not a big fan of, of singlets and um, draining the energy from the mirror. Uh, on the subject of mirrors, ironically, um, there's, they've almost like there's been a, What's the word when they've got everyone to ban the books, to burn the books? Prohibition or, you know, it's almost like a prohibition on mirrors. It's these days if you have a mirror in the gym, you're crook, there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a mirror in your gym. You don't have to have to have wall-to-wall -wall mirrors, but you should have at least a mirror in your gym. There's a time and a place for some technical feedback for a person. So um, a lot of strategies around what you wear, who you hang with, um, you know, the best way to get, get bigger is to find bigger people to hang with. You feel small and you, you want to catch up to them. Whereas you are the biggest person in your group, you're not getting the same benefit. So you're on, you're on track there with that, uh, Victor. As far as new developments, yeah, we've learned a lot um, 
in the 15 years since the last get buff focus 15 years 13 years 12 years um and and what i did with the get buff book just from an author's perspective a little background information is that i wrote how to write first and i took the content from how to write and i made a layman's version of it in get buffed so it was a layman's version of it so i've written how to transfer and that included a lot of my newer developments like not the concept when i say new i i, I published predominantly after 10 years of development um, which is very different in this world of instant gratification. So I like to develop content for up to 10 years and then I write about it. So how to transfer 2018 has a lot of the concepts which will then be written in layman's terms in, in the next get buffed installment. How's that for a hint? That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm for the next. I'm for the next. And, and because you do come to a lot of my seminars, you, you do get to hear me experiment with my concepts. Um, like the, the shape in which you load is the shape in which you adopt is a, is, a, is a concept I've been working on for the best part of a decade. Um, and you would have heard me say that you know, quite a number of times during that time period. So you do have a bit of a, a heads up. Okay, some great questions now starting to flow. You know, the floor is open, but we're about to close the door. And um, happy to address any of your questions. Tong! My Cambodian girlfriend has, has got a question for us. I love your book. Um, it's great. Uh, it's great. Talking about psychology, uh, lifting has a lot of men psychology. So I was wondering if you were planning in the future to talk about how women approach lifting and their body and their physique and their emotional and society's um, interpretation of women lifting. That would really help me. Yeah, so we have um, many projects in the chamber and the complete parallel range, there is potential for uh, a woman's parallel to the men's. So th there's a few sides to that. First of all, you know, you've got to women who say, you know, stuff it, it's all equal. I want to I want to look like a man, lift like a man. And that's, that's probably a growing, growing um, category. Uh, especially based on you know what I'm seeing when I go to events like the Swiss event. Then you've got the category that say, you know, I, I, I want to have equal rights and, and I want to have equal opportunities, but I don't necessarily want everything that a man would get from training, which is sums up most athletes as opposed to the weightlifter bodybuilder that I spoke about first. And then there's probably the third category of female that is a general pop, the general population that you know, I want to, if lifting weights is going to have improve my my my, my toneness and my, my appearance i'll do it but i'm really a bit paranoid about looking like a man so the psychology of women as, as an inhibiting factor on the adaptation of training is far greater um, than than men as you've said and i've worked with a lot of uh, female athletes i've had a lot of uh, practice at this it, it, it when i look back at the, the and women's sport, generally speaking, doesn't generate the same profile or income that men's sport does in most cases, although tennis are doing their best to equalise it. Um, I've had the fortune of working with, with, with as, as equal number of great women athletes. Um, I call them Amazons for the most part. Um, you know, there's something special about their, their, their bodies and their, their, their minds, uh, but some phenomenal um, opportunities to learn about that. 
So, Tom, from your perspective, I'll give a bit of an overview, but from your perspective, and you can speak in the first person or you can speak in the third person, what are some of the key things that you'd like to see discussed or addressed in this area? Just, um, Just what um, goes to your body, how society perceives you as a woman, and how it can be empowering. And I really love the way you categorize each psychology. If you can explain that a little more, that would be great for a lot of women who are out there who are, out there. Into, are a little bit afraid. Yeah, a little So if you go back to the root motivating for the root, the root motivator for changing your physique, and for the most part, it's what other people think. And and the irony for most men is about what other men think. And, you know, for the homophobic, that's a scary thought. But... It's understanding the, the driving factor, why people want to do what they want to do, helps you understand their psychology. Most get buff people want to create a perception for another male, a male on a male, so to speak. Now, it's not always the case. Um, listening to the, the Great Britain bodybuilder that I had the opportunity to, um, I just got a memory bank, I shouldn't have. Um, he was massive, absolutely massive. Uh, Dorian Yates, listening to him speak in the last uh, year or two ago, he said when he stopped bodybuilding, he, he didn't care anymore. He said, I didn't, I didn't do bodybuilding to be a bodybuilder. I did a bodybuilding to be the best. So that gave an insight into his psychology. So if I said, generally speaking, men lift so they can impress other men, what is the generic psychology of women's motivation for lifting? Is it to oppress other women or is it to oppress other men? I wouldn't know. I think that I would be. Know. I think that would be. So you know, we can all have theories on that, and it's early days to build those theories. But for those who are conscious of what they look for men, then understanding the psychology of a man and what men's perceptions are will help them. Now. I'm going to open up a sort of a gender warfare here, but sometimes I think um, women probably create boogeymen in their mind about what a man might see in their in, in them. In terms of, I think a lot of the concerns are a false evidence appearing real, um, and I think those barriers are being broken down to a greater extent now because there are more and more women playing sport and lifting in a way that you almost can't tell the difference uh, between a male and a female. I mean, in, in Australia at the moment, in some areas of the country, women's AFL is getting more coverage than men's AFL. And women's rugby union at the sevens because they won, uh, they won gold in our region is higher, higher profile than men who struggle to win gold or struggle to get a medal uh, at the recently introduced sport of the Olympics. So I think the there are less there are much less impediments now for a woman than there, there has ever been. But when you're training a woman, you definitely need to, to deal with, identify and, and work with those concerns. 
Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much for your insight. You're welcome, Tom. You know, one of the reasons why the gender difference in, in, in training effects is what it is, is because of women's rights. And so you can get a scientific study that show, you know, women's adaptations may be less, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I think that's, there are some variables there, including upper body, lower body, but the, the main limiting factor is intensity. And if women are holding back on intensity because of the fear of the byproduct of their training, then obviously affects the, the outcome. So it's important to deal with because it will affect their application. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have to deal with the elf in the room on that one. Okay. So we are in our final stages. We've had a long chat. Just checking to see, Anthony, was that a new hand or an old hand? That's a new hand, Ian. That's a new hand, Ian. Go ahead, Anthony. And what are your thoughts on cardio and intermittent fasting, which is going to come about? summarize some of those trends and you are right we humans overreact in the short term and underact in the long term uh, and cardio has been thrown out completely and there's been a perception that strength training will give you everything now the one good shift I believe is, is increased awareness that nutrition can give you outcomes that in the past people would train for so too much training yeah. was being done to get yeah. an adaptation because the nutrition was poor but assuming nutrition is optimized What's the role of cardio? I do believe that cardio has a place for a number of reasons. When I use the word cardio, I'm using it loosely. I prefer someone to do a skill-based activity than a, than a stationary uh, device. But, you know, if you're in a cold climate and, and, you, and you, it's not convenient or you don't have hand eye coordination or whatever, you know, get on a treadmill or bike, whatever. Um, but I think there has been an overreaction to complete disregard for it. I, do, I don't think um, this... The, the the promise has been that if you do circuit-based training that you're going to get the results. Now, circuit-based training was popularised a number of times throughout our, my professional career. In the 1980s, Universal had a multi-station <coughs> machine and they popularised circuit training so they could work around that. Mm -hmm. Then um, Nautilus had machines in a row. It wasn't quite circuit training, but it was similar. You move down the machine, one set, move along. Circuit training has been popularised now because Post the 2000, post 2001, when 2001 was 9/11, the the American economy ha had a bit of a bit of a hiccup around about that period of time for a number of reasons. They had the tech, the tech, the tech bubble boom, uh, boom and bust in the early 2000s and 9/11. So manufacturing got hit pretty hard. This is my theory. The the thirst for developing a very expensive piece of metal in the way of a big machine was lost. The, the, the margins were challenged. You know, I think it was just economically too hard. What became very popular then was people saying, well, listen, how are we gonna make money out of equipment? Because equipment drives the industry. All training 
popularization is driven by equipment manufacturers. They'll they'll popularize a training method to sell their machine. They'll they'll fund seminar circuits, national tours. They'll fund uh, professional development national seminars. Um, you know, at the professional development um, annual seminars. It's all equipment driven because money is money. Equipment. You know. The Cybex, uh, Cybex, um, and before that, uh, Nautilus. Uh, again, and my memory will come back to me, but the person who brought us Nautilus was in the top 500 most, most wealthy people in America at one point in time. Then, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, I should, shouldn't have a memory blank. He made such a massive contribution to the industry, um, and it will come back to me. So Arthur, what I'm saying James. Is, Arthur James. Arthur James. My apologies, Arthur. Um, Arthur, Arthur, if you have ever research on Arthur's wealth, um, he, he was able to accumulate through his equipment empire was phenomenal. Yeah, I know Dorian Yates. Dorian Yates, sorry. Dorian Yates spoke a lot Dorian about Yates him. Spoke a lot about yes. Him. Yes, I, I can imagine. Um, so I believe that the popularization of circuits has come back to the fact that money is now made out of selling small equipment. So I watched in America and a company for, for probably the best part of two decades selling high jump equipment, track and field equipment. They weren't making much money. Then they jumped on this trend of if I could get a, a piece of foam that was previously used in a swimming pool and sold for 20 cents in a swimming pool shop and tell it to someone because they, they, they need to foam roll and I'll sell for 10 bucks. So it, it became the new business model in, in the American fitness industry to import Chinese manufactured toys and sell them. So they have to manufacture training methods to, to promote them. This is what's driven the functional training industry. If there wasn't this link between the, the import and distributor of small, small priced equipment and the seminar tours, that, that term would have died by now. It's, 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 mm. And I, I, in, in Australia, you're seeing you know, func F45, functional, 45, etc. So basically, you get a room, and CrossFit did the same thing. Minimal equipment, pack the room out, and, and the bigger margins. Yeah. So if I do circuit training or any form of high-intensity strength training, is it going to negate my cardio work? Not completely. There are people. I believe who will get a better result in body fat manipulation by including some form of energy system training outside of strength training. Yeah. There are additional health benefits from doing so. So we are in a period of overreaction against aerobic work. Now, again, in the same way that I cringe at the functional training uh, movement, I, I, I kicked it off with my popularization of bodyweight exercises. I also kicked off the anti-aerobic movement in the late 80s, early 90s when I, when I made some very, very firm public statements and the first time anyone had the, had the courage or, or, or understanding to say that there is no science behind the aerobic training myth that everybody had to have an aerobic base before they could dare do speed work or before they could do any form of sports training, they had to have an aerobic base. You know, that, 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 I pulled the plug on that myth and it has continued on since then to an overreaction to saying, well, we don't need any. You know, I, I still want to see people moving. I still want to see people walking, um, you know, jogging on a basketball court. They're, 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 this over-reliance on the gym is, is inappropriate from a number of perspectives. So I...
I've been uh, I've had some good personal experience as well in the CrossFit mentality. In that you know, if you go through military training, you know, back in the day, or military, your paramilitary, police training, you're basically doing a, a form of CrossFit circuit. And you know, that's the way they used to to basically um, push the the recruits into into condition. So there's a time and place where it's nothing new, but you know, if you're going to do that every day, that's another story. You had a second uh, question, Anthony. Sorry, I addressed the first one. Yeah, just about intermittent fasting and how that's been popularised. I've been intrigued by that as well. Um, I got to tell you, I, I like the technique. I've I've actually been promoting it for I don't know um, as long as I've been riding get buffed. In that, for me, um, if you're, for example, you're on a four-day split, you've got potentially your Wednesday off and your Saturday, Sunday off, potentially, depending upon what other training you're doing. But I like to reduce the calorie consumptions, particularly on the weekends. I believe mm -hmm. there is uh, a lot of upside into improving your body sensitivity to food by bringing it down. And there was a bit of popularization uh, probably 20 years ago. Bill Phillips was, was kicking it off a lot between uh, significant changing in macro macronutrient components, like two weeks of this and two weeks of that. But this is just an extension of that. And I, there are, in my opinion, a, a lot more uh, longevity benefits. There's a lot more health benefits associated with this than, than now the simply, you know, the performance focus. Let's just change our macronutrients up. So uh, reduced calorie intake has been a, a, a real uh, popular mainstay in the longevity life extension industry for as long as I've been looking at it. So, yes, I, I, I agree with you. It is a, a trend that has been growing and, and, and it is one that I've been using. Now, when I, I, don't, I don't believe you have to go to the extreme of no food. Um, I don't think that's necessary all the time. I'm not saying anything wrong with it. Um, what the good things about reduced calorie intake or, or, or fasting it does is, is emotional because so many people get addicted to their food in that food helps you feel good. But food to a, to a bodybuilder or a weightlifter, especially during a weight gain phase, is like if I'm not eating, if I'm not eating massive amounts, I'm going to shrink. And you now there's some validity to that. And the minute you cut back your food, your fluid component drops in your body. Um, so it, it's, but it, it's important for for a lot of occupations to understand that they can't always be in the gym lifting, they can't always be eating optimally, especially you know military workers. They're not always life isn't always going to be optimal. And you have to have the confidence your body's not going to fall apart with that approach. So um, I've been practicing a form of reduced calorie consumption for decades, and, and I'm a fan of it. Whether or not you take it to the full extent, um, you know, it's another d discussion. And also in your training weeks, you can drop your calorie intake in training week. Sorry, in your non-training week, uh, your recovery weeks, etc. Another opportunity there. And the, and the food, the relationship between food and our and our joints. I think you heard Steve Oliver on our podcast last week talking about how he felt his joints were better. Uh, Bill Pearl came to that conclusion after coming off some of the, the protein sources he had been using for so many decades. And our bodies do change as we age, etc. So there's possibility of, of having different needs as you do get older. So I like it. I just think that we're probably going to overreact on it. Humans are probably going to overreact on it. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've had some great questions. We are looking uh, at a wrap if we have no further questions. Haven't heard about the French accent from Remy yet, but Gil has been pretty quiet. Okay, assuming everybody knows how to take themselves off mute and, and or use the 
ask a question button. So we will go to a wrap. I appreciate everyone being on the call and I appreciate everybody who's supported the Get Buff program and Get Buffed educational range in the last 20 years. It's been um, a byproduct of the work I do with athletes as well as a personal interest. I got exposed to the concept of bodybuilding when I met a strong man at the age of about seven on a remote island in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, you know, he certainly drew my attention to muscles. He used to love to flex his biceps. And that has become the, the trademark symbol of, of Get Buffed. And, and even for many athletes, and you, know, you see the boxers doing it all the time, it's a symbol of strength, you know, that, that flexed arm look. So we've, it's been, a, been a, a passion for my entire life, contributing to people's training to get bigger, stronger, and or leaner, whatever their, their pursuit is. And uh, it's, a, it's an industry that we've contributed to for directly through the Get Buff range for the last 20 years. So thank you, everybody, and uh, we'll continue to expand that range, and we've got a few announcements coming up in the near future. Appreciate it. We'll talk.